0: How do religious people use, what you'd call a cultural phenomenon, or like a a phenomenon within digital culture, if you will? How do they use that phenomenon in a way to promote that's faith-promoting for them or faith-faith-assuring for them? Um, Because memes, in a lot of ways, they challenge authority. The memes are really mostly humorous; they're sardonic; they're aimed at, you know, being playful. Uh, They range from being playful and witty to being outright you know, nasty and kind of hate-filled. And there's a lot of dark memes. There's a lot of, but but people don't typically, when they think of a meme, they don't think, oh, it's it's inspiring, faith-promoting, motivational type thing. At least at that time, you know, obviously things are changing constantly.
1: It's time for another episode of The Cultural Hall. And Gavin doesn't know this, but We are uh, 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 doing a first, a first ever in the more than 650 episodes of the cultural hall. We are now internationally uh, recording now, Gavin, he's in Brazil. I'm in, uh, I'm in Salt Lake, Taylorsville to be exact. I'm racking my brain thinking maybe once upon a time we talked to someone in England, but that's basically just the United States East. So, uh, we're, we're doing this international thing. Gavin, thanks for being here.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: I got to know uh, what, what, uh, what, what is it that uh, brings a guy like yourself down to, uh, Brazil? What are you doing in Brazil? Um, yeah, it depends on
0: how far back we want to go. But my wife was born in Brazil, so she's okay. got family ties here. Really, what it came down to is we wanted our kids to have um, an opportunity to learn Portuguese, okay, um, to learn about this side of their family heritage, the culture, to get to know um, this half of their family. And, uh, you know, with COVID and some different career changes... There was kind of a window that opened up for us to come do it. So we we jumped on it. We've been here for a year and we're really happy. We love it.
1: So how did you meet a wife that was from Brazil? Did you serve a mission down there or? No, no. Um, a lot of people think that
0: because I speak Portuguese and my uh, Portuguese is not great, but I, I get by uh-huh. and people ask, oh, you must have served there. Uh, I met my wife. Her name is Barb, Barbara.
1: Um, that does uh, just was, interjecting real quick. That does not sound like the typical Portuguese name. Like if you're like, yeah, a Brazilian woman's name, I don't think Barb is the first name that I would pick out of the ether.
0: Well, it's it's not uncommon here, but you say really? a little different in in Brazil, you'd say Barbara. So it sounds a little bit. Oh yeah, it does sound. Um, better. It sounds better. A little different way. than Barb. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, she was she was born in brazil her family moved to florida when she was a kid and she grew up in florida mostly and then she went out to the university at the university of utah uh, which is where i'm from utah so we met while we were both in school
1: very cool very cool and then a couple kids uh i'm guessing two are we 2.5 are we running the national average no we're, we're above the average um four four okay. is the new eight yeah <laughs> But probably sticking out a little bit like you had eight in Brazil, or do they have a culture of large families down there? Um, Yeah,
0: we. so we lived in Sweden before we moved to Brazil. And I think we stuck out more in Sweden, um, in both places for different reasons. In Sweden, because we were really loud. um, (laughs) And Swedes are, you know, kind of traditionally a little bit more on the quiet, introverted side. So we were this loud, boisterous, intense American family. Um, and we're not, we're definitely not as loud as a lot of our Brazilian neighbors. So that's nice here in Brazil, but we stand out because, you know, I have red hair and three of my kids have red hair and that's not quite as common here. So yeah, we stand out for different reasons. Number of kids. Yeah, I think definitely four is,
1: is more than the average here for sure. The feller kids come walking down the street and all the Brazilians go, wait a minute. Why? What? Well, look at all these ginger kids. It's a little ginger parade.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's fun. I mean, I mean, people, they see the connection between me and my kids, obviously, but my wife, you know, she has olive skin and dark brown hair. And it, it's kind of crazy that that my genes, you know, won out <laughs> to some extent. So it's kind of a surprise when people see her and they see me. It's like, oh, how'd that happen? You know, so <laughs> it's fun, though. It's what we were hoping for when we got married. We said, we're going to have tan redheads. <laughs> And we kind of got what we wished for, and know it was possible. But yeah, you
1: know, uh, to that point though, when people see me and my wife, they sort of go, "How did that work out?" But it's just me and my wife, and she is she is you know several degrees higher than me, and they just go, "He he must have something we don't see on the outside. He must be <laughs> very nice, or have lots of money, or something, because uh, it doesn't make sense." Yeah, as people just I, sort of pass by.
0: I get that too. Uh, I'm in the same. Same there.
1: So so I got to know, and this will probably lead into a little bit of our discussion that we'll have today. What takes a guy from Utah to Sweden to Brazil? Uh, is it is it course of study? Is it professions that kind of take you all around? What what does that look like?
0: Yeah, so I finished my PhD in 2017, worked for a couple of years at Southern Utah University. Go T-Birds. Um, yeah, that's right. And we had a lot of fun. We loved it there um but I didn't we didn't feel settled we didn't feel like we were ready to settle down you know it was my first big job out of grad school so I was still chasing stuff on the career side I felt really ambitious I wanted you know something bigger um for for better or worse you know I wanted wanted something more uh and then on the family side yeah we we felt like it wasn't the place that we wanted to call home you know um Mm -hmm. even though we were close to my family which is in northern Utah so I was looking at jobs about a year into that job I started looking around mm-hmm. and I saw a posting for a job in Sweden and I'd never considered Sweden never thought about it I've never been um anywhere in Europe actually so mm-hmm. it was just kind of a one off thing I applied and you know after several conversations with uh with my would be boss and with my wife and a visit we went and visited and you know once we visited my wife was sold you know, she was like we're going. And I was, I was a little bit still on the fence because, you know, I, I had just gotten a, you know, it was a a tenure track university position as a professor, you know? And so it was like, you know, I'm not quite so anxious to leave this great job and finally have some income for the first time, <laughs> you know, getting married young, having kids young and you finally finish school and you finally have some income. And it's like, we're going to go overseas where we know nobody uh-huh. um, to a country we've never been to. And the contract for my job it was a university research position uh, it was a two-year gig so with no guarantee for anything after actually i was told that there would be nothing after so so it was a, a tough decision a
1: guarantee yeah. of nothing after right it's not exactly. maybe it's no there will not be <laughs> no thank you we're done
0: yeah exactly it was pretty hard two years that's it so um it took us a few months to decide and we ultimately decided to take the leap and we were really happy we did.
1: Was it was it God influenced or was it just sort of like an intellectual decision or a little bit of both?
0: I'd say definitely both. I mean, I grew up asking God for help and, you know, looking for personal spiritual inspiration for big decisions like that. The career side, I was thinking um, this would be a way for me to stop teaching so much because I was teaching a lot. And I loved Southern Utah University. I mean, SUU was awesome for the students were amazing. I was doing a lot of media projects, a lot of hands-on video stuff. It was really involved, but I wanted to finish this book that we'll talk about. I wanted to do more research, more writing, and I couldn't do any of that because teaching was just everything there. Um, so that there, there were career motivations to sort of my game plan was thinking, okay, if I'm trying to get to a bigger, higher um, university, then... I'm probably going to need to publish more and get a better, you know, CV or resume. So if I go to Sweden, it will give me a chance to, you know, focus on my publishing, my research. And then when I come back, I'll have a great shot at a, at a, an even better job. So that was kind of the thought. And on the personal front, it was much more about just having international experience. Like, let's, let's get away from the States for a little bit and let's see what it's like and see how our kids do. And... Um, yeah, we took the leap and we we haven't looked back.
1: Give me an idea of what the church was like. I think in my mind, if I had to say, Hey, what is the church like in, uh, Sweden? I would think certainly a close knit family, but I would think pretty small as far as footprint. Is that accurate?
0: Definitely. Yeah. It's, it's quite small. Um, we were in Northern Sweden and there were, it was a branch there were about 50 people who regularly attended the branch um maybe less depending on the week so it was it was pretty small um compared to you know growing up in utah sure uh, and even for my wife growing up in in south florida it was it was very different the language barrier was tough too because uh, everyone basically everyone under 50 years old speaks english incredibly well in sweden it's mm-hmm. you know has the I think the second or third highest proficiency of English as a second language in the world, you know, behind Amsterdam and maybe Finland. I'm not sure the other two, but people speak English really well. And, um, it's hard for them to want to speak Swedish for with, you know, foreigners who think it just speak English. So we don't have motivation. You know, my wife and I didn't have motivation to learn Swedish, but all of the meetings at church were in Swedish. Yeah, So the barrier was there at church. Um, A little bit harder than everyday life, which is kind of surprising. So everyday life, you know, grocery store, whatever we're doing, it was just fine to speak English, but at church, all the meetings were in Swedish. And that was kind of tough. That was another barrier. I didn't feel like there were also there are very few young families with kids. Um, so it was it was hard to feel at home, definitely when it came to a church in, in Sweden where we were at.
1: Compare that then to your experience now with the church in Brazil. My impression of Brazil if a general conference or like ward mission, uh, instruction would, would tell me that everyone is a member in Brazil. I'm air quoting, of course, not really. It's just how many of them actually attend. They were baptized at some point because we baptized everyone that we could, but the activity rate is so very low. Is that sort of the culture and the, and, and some of the attitude within the church or, or what is that church experience like there in Brazil?
0: Yeah, I think there's definitely a perception, you know, my brother, my oldest brother served a mission in Brazil and there's definitely this perception, you know, as a teenager, I remember thinking, oh yeah, the church is so big in Brazil, it's so strong. And It doesn't feel like that to me here, Mm -hmm. you know, where I'm at. It feels much more like, you know, being a member of the church uh, outside of the kind of quote unquote Mormon belt in the US, you know, where we're 2% of the population and yeah, people have friends that are Mormons. I think everyone here knows of the church that I talked to. Not everyone, but a lot of people. Oh yeah, the Mormon Church. or They'll have a friend that's a member, but it's not quite as um, ubiquitous as you'd think. There's still still a lot of a lot of people that are, yeah, unfamiliar. Uh, and where we're at, the specific city we're at is called Florianopolis, or, or Floripa for short, and it's got a big influx of expats like us um who've come in the last few years and so that makes it a little more international than some places in Brazil um so yeah that, that is that flavor to it as well
1: hmm. Hmm. uh the other thing that i would ask you you said phd you you don't look very old and i don't want to be that guy that's like my well, phd you look like you're 20 but you don't look very old uh what did you get your phd in yeah i'm 36 for the record that is unreal to me i <laughs> We we are not that much different in age, and I guarantee you that if we put the two of us in a room, they'd go, "Oh, is this your son? Is this?" You know, I I really I'm not that much older, but I just feel the age between you and I. And you've got the four kids that should age you more. And I I don't. Oh, care. it's it's just a facade, man. It's a, it's a facade. I'm I'm very
0: weathered inside. Yeah. I, I have a baby face. I can't grow a beard and I shaved today, you know, for this interview. Oh, so of course,
1: of course, it, it
0: really enhances those kid like facial features. Um, yeah, I, I finished my Ph.D. when I was, what, 32. So, yeah, my Ph.D. is in, in media and communications. Uh, and I got into the field because I grew up. Well, here's the backstory, if, okay. if you want to hear it. Yeah, please. Um, That's why I I, I I grew up with a dad who's a musician. He's a professor of music at Weber State uh, in Utah. And so I I loved music. I kind of wanted to be the the indie rock star as a teenager. So I played a lot of music, recorded a lot of music. And my ambition was to become an audio engineer. Uh, And then it shifted toward, well, I think the better jobs are in audio and video. Um, And this was around 2004, 2008, right? And so I started looking at video and I found, oh, the degree at the university where you get to do audio and video stuff is communications. Um, so there was this practical side to it that's always appealed to me, the creative side producing, you know, content, um, performing, so to speak, uh, editing audio, that kind of stuff was always fun to me. And I really got a lot of energy from that, but it wasn't until I took a sociology class actually where this kind of intellectual side really took off because as a kid, um, I was not very studious. I, I've always been very curious. Ever since I was very little, I I love learning and I've kept that with me my whole life, thankfully. But I hated school for for many years, and um, I was, you know, I had friends who were were nerds, but I was never the type of kid that you would think. Oh, he's going to go on and do a PhD and become an <laughs> academic, a university right. professor, right? You'd right. never think that because I was, I was ditching school to go play, you know, record songs in my friend's basement, right? Sure. You know, I I didn't care that much in high school. Uh, I I did really poor on the ACT. You know, the ACT equivalent, uh, the SAT equivalent. And you know, it wasn't until I was just about finishing my undergraduate that I realized, oh, like there's something fun about like studying, and something really fun about this like intellectual curiosity kind of came back to life in me. And so when I finished my undergrad, I thought, well, I just kind of feel like I just started to figure out how to actually do this this school thing. Um, and I went on and did a master's and I thought, okay, I'm going to do a master's. And I'm going to decide I'm going to work um, in the media industry. So I worked doing video production, video editing for an entertainment company. And I'm going to, you know, go all in with this master's program in communications where I'll, I'll get to teach uh, as, as a teaching assistant. And I'll go full in into these, you know, a little bit more intellectual, discussions and, and grad seminars. So I kind of was balancing this intellectual with this real practical industry side and thought, okay, at the end of those two years, the end of my master's, I'll be able to decide what I want to do. And at the end, I felt really excited about the intellectual side. And I thought, and you know, I don't really want to keep hustling. I mean, this is, I'm not like, it wasn't like I was 50 years old, like tired of the grind, but I just felt like, yeah, I looked at people who climbed a ladder, so to speak, in the media industry. And it was a lot of nights and weekends. And it was a sure. lot of, but I felt like we're, um, there's a lot of unethical stuff happening in the, the company that I worked at as well, which really put me off. And I felt like, I don't know, I just don't run around that. At the same time, I was getting so excited about research and writing. And this kind of nerd just came out in me. And I felt like, let's go. My wife was really supportive and we were all in. We said, let's go into a PhD and being an academic can be a great day job. And we'll see what happens after. You know, my dream was never academia professor as like as the end. It was always a stepping stone. I always felt like I'll go and do this because it's exciting. And I've got a lot of ideas right now and I've got the momentums there and the family is supportive. So let's do this while we can and we'll see what it leads to after.
1: Yeah. When we come back, we're going to take a break real quick. When we come back in the second block of the cultural hall, I want to introduce some of the ideas and concepts that you bring up in uh, your new book. It's called Eternity in the Ether, a Mormon media history. There'll be a link for it in the show notes and a special shout out, I guess, at this point to the folks over at University of Illinois Press. They always connect us with, you know, great content to be able to talk about it. But I want to get into some of these concepts because I found it absolutely fascinating. We'll come back and do that in the second block of the cultural hall. BestDJinUtah.com is a website that you need to go to if you would like to party with me. Now, just because it says Utah as part of the URL does not mean that it has to be in the state of Utah. I've traveled to such illustrious places as Wyoming, Nevada, Texas, Washington, and others. Idaho as well. If uh, if you're having an event and you think, you know what, I would love the energy, the charisma that is Richie uh, to be able to bless the event. I don't know why I said bless. You can hit me up, bestdjinutah.com. Maybe you you yourself are getting married or has been the case multiple times this year. You are the apparent... Not a parent, just the parent uh, or one of the parents because there's multiple parents. I'm getting distracted. You are one of the parents of the bride or groom and you think, Richie would be great to be at this event. You can hit me up, bestdjinutah.com. Be sure that you mentioned uh, that you hear it on the cultural hall. I may, in fact, even get you a little bit of a discount. Who knows? We'll see how I feel that day. It's bestdjinyutah.com. Hi friends, Dan the Laptop Man here from PC Laptops. You can get a brand new PC Laptops desktop and they start at only $29 a month and it comes with a lifetime warranty. Just check us out at pclaptops.com. That's pclaptops.com. Here in the second block of the Cultural Hall, encourage you to become a Patreon saint of the Cultural Hall. You can go to patreon.com forward slash the Cultural Hall. We always like to say, put your money where your ears are. These things cost money, people, even though it's free to you. We love to have your financial support and it uh and it and it matters, it means something to us. Uh, it is also how you get to be a part of the secret but not sacred Facebook group where everyone who is a Patreon saint is hanging out. So check that out. It's patreon.com forward slash the cultural hall. Gavin, uh Eternity in the Ether, a Mormon Media History. That's the name of your book. Give people an idea of the um the culmination of study, what what made you seek out to write something like this and and also, what is this even about?
0: Yeah., uh, so the background of the book, I was in graduate school and I kept I was learning a lot about media. I studied with a, a media philosopher, media history, historian, and he was a huge influence on me. He's a, a personal hero of mine, just a, an absolute um mensch just an amazing amazing mentor and he would really he's he got me thinking about media in very different ways but i all these questions that i was coming across in my different graduate seminars kind of took me back to mormonism you know i was learning about these different theories these different ideas these different approaches um and i kept thinking oh what does that look like in a mormon context you know just naturally was gravitating toward these questions and thinking oh that how would that theory be, you know, maybe complicated or how would it be changed? Or if I, you know, put that into a Mormon context. So that's where it all started was I started writing shorter articles about Mormon media. You know, I published several articles
1: about different topics. And, and then like what? Give me an idea. Cause like, uh, so when I think you know, Mormon and media, I think a couple of things. One I think is beware the media, right? This clarion call of watch out, beware it's infiltrating the walls of your home. That's what I think of when I think of the church and media. And then maybe at a bigger picture, I think of like religions and media. And I think of there's a number at the bottom. Call and give your money and you know make a pledge, make your tithe, make your offering, uh, so that this church can continue to go. I guess that's where my mind goes when I think of media and specifically uh, our church, but churches in general.
0: Yeah, I think it's a little bit of all of that. Um... Yeah, when so media for me is not necessarily just news media because I think people hear the word media and they think, oh, it's news media or it's you know it's it's like TV, it's, it's CNN, it's it's Fox, whatever, it's the media, right? Mm-hmm. And there's the fake news and there's all sorts of other ways you think about media now. But um, when I mean media in Mormonism, I mean in a pretty broad sense. So the first the first article I think I published came out of a graduate seminar i was just writing about mormon feminism online so i was just writing about how different you know self-proclaimed mormon feminists talk about being mormon and being feminist and the different people on different ends of the spectrum from the more radical to the the more conservative and that was just really interesting to me how they used blogs in particular so blogging was the the technology the platform and how did they kind of express their identity and you know grapple with these ideas about, um, community and, and all this stuff that, that runs through, you know, the rest of my research, you know, kind of started with me thinking about Mormon feminism online. So that's one example. Mm -hmm. Another was, um, looking at Mormon memes. So internet memes, um, looking at some of them that came out of, uh, some, so you have a really kind of pithy quote from a church leader at general conference, um, that people will post, you know, as kind of like the picture with the, with the quote on it.
1: Sure. Really great, really great script, a very soft color. And I look at it and I go, oh, I can make it through the day. No sort of knock. It doesn't do things for me, but I certainly know exactly what you're talking about.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That kind of stuff. And then, and then how it gets remixed and kind of remade and how people who have, you know, negative feelings toward the church and members of the church start to twist it in different ways and make their own versions of it. And so it was just kind of um, looking at that phenomenon again. So it's, it's a lot of topics that people, other people had looked at memes and religion, but they hadn't looked at Mormonism yet. So I kept finding ways where there were these gaps and there were these opportunities to say, Oh, people have talked about this and this, but they haven't talked about it you know, with the Mormon angle, so it was kind of finding the Mormon angle on these interesting questions about, you know, technology, about, 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 yeah, communication technology, um, the way that we interact with other people at a cultural level. So all that stuff, just kind of thinking, what can I add to this? And at first, to start out as an experiment, saying, "Oh, is this actually an interesting idea? Mm-hmm. Will people care?" And I got good feedback, so I just I kept going, and I found it really interesting, but. I didn't want to talk just to myself, you know, so <laughs> once I got some feedback from other people saying, yeah, this is, this is really cool stuff that gave me more motivation to keep going. So I ended up publishing most of my work on, on Mormon media, different angles, then it all culminated in the book. So the book was kind of this capstone, I'm going to bring it all together over the years and tell more of a story this time, put it into more of a chronology. Um, I added some new stuff, obviously, and and it all came together in, in one piece and hopefully it's uh, intelligible and interesting to some people
1: out there. give, give me an idea because I think someone listening to this is like, okay, so he studied Mormon memes. So like what what do we what do we glean from studying that? Is it like is it sort of the sociological approach of like who are the people that really attach to the, you know, the the faith promoting things and 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 what does it say or can what do we learn from the people that would learn to make fun of it or what is it about? Uh, you know, this particular meme that made this so popular, where this other thing that is just like it is very different? Or is it, you know, memes in comparative relationship to a blog post or a YouTube video? Like, I, and I never mm-hmm. want to be insulting, but I love asking this question. Like, why does anyone care about this beyond, oh, isn't that interesting?
0: Yeah, no, I think you have to, I think every academic has to a- ask that question otherwise you're just kind of navel gazing right it's not yeah. really going to be it's not going to be good work if you don't really ask that question sincerely and you're not really able to answer it um so i was always asking myself that question like who's going to care why would they care and this instance with the memes it's more about how do religious people use um what you would call a cultural phenomenon or like a, a phenomenon within digital culture if you will how do they use that phenomenon in a way to promote that's faith promoting for them or faith faith assuring for them Um, because memes in a lot of ways they challenge authority like the 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 memes are really mostly humorous they're sardonic they're aimed at you know being playful uh they range from being playful and witty to being outright you know nasty and kind of Mm hate-filled and there's a lot of dark memes there's a lot of but but people don't typically when they think of a meme they don't think oh it's this inspiring Faith promoting um, motivational type thing, at least at that time, you know, obviously things are changing constantly. So that was one angle was kind of asking that question, noticing that there were a lot of Mormon memes, if you will, and trying to figure out why are people posting these, what's kind of happening with these um, and what's the kind of bigger takeaway and that that was the bigger takeaway is to say that the kind of takeaway we got from the article I, wrote, I co-wrote this with a, a friend of mine who's a professor at UNLV now. And the takeaway was that it's another way for people to express their religiosity and their identity, Um, that they don't have to just sit in a pew on Sundays um, or, you know, be reading scriptures or or doing these things that we typically think of as faith promoting or spiritual or religious, quote unquote. There's other ways to live your religion. And for some people, posting uh, this inspirational quote from one of the church leaders and trying to get more views and more likes and more comments is is really meaningful to them. So that's, that's pretty simple, but that's kind of what one of the, the things we took from that.
1: Yeah. I think that that's fascinating. Uh, before I go any further, I have to ask you, do you have a particularly favorite? And I know that this is like telling someone to explain their favorite cartoon, but do you have a particular favorite LDS meme that comes to mind? Um, when you you think about the different memes that you've seen, either in in just passing or in research for this book? Um, One of my favorites is
0: the, which is pretty multi-layered, and it's one that um, I think people will remember Elder, uh, or President Uchtdorf at the time, his talk where he said, doubt your doubts before you doubt your faith. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's the quote there, right, which has kind of become a little bit, a borderline iconic, I think for our generation. Uh, and then you have the, this meme of the most interesting man in the world, uh, the, the beer, um, that meme with Uchtdorf on there saying, I don't always doubt my doubts. Um, <laughs> but when I do, right. Yeah. And so I don't always doubt, but when I do, I doubt my doubts. I think that's what it was. Yeah. Yeah. So like that to me is just, it's funny because it's it's again it's really great i like how much is packed into this one little image i think that's why memes are so interesting because it can be really funny at one level but it can also be a little bit maybe offensive to other people at another level Mm -hmm. can kind of be poking fun at at people and there's like this sort of circular logic to it like wait how do you doubt your doubts like you start thinking about it too much and it's it's kind of like uh, it doesn't really make sense you know and so it does all this stuff just packed into this one little meme that's one that i like i think it's kind of fun
1: i i want to walk out so my favorite one um just because i think that there there's some s- some other points of of why studying something like memes would be interesting so you've probably seen this it's the picture of um the savior embracing someone right as they come mm-hmm. and then there's a the little thought bubble above and the this particular one says i'm so glad you didn't drink coffee and i don't know that one it, and it's the savior <laughs> embracing this person you know saying uh, it's essentially like welcome to heaven oh i'm so glad that you're here and that you didn't drink coffee and i regu- i i recognize to some people that is maybe even blasphemous right just just inappropriate but but what i think is valuable about it is it puts it in a different light that if i just If I'm making a social media post or I'm doing a video or a TikTok or whatever the thing would be, blog post, doesn't matter, and I'm just saying, I think it's a little ridiculous that uh, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints think that you can't drink coffee and go to the celestial kingdom or the highest, right? Like instantly that sort of puts an affront to people and people go, "Ah, I don't know, but you have this, this iconic picture, you know what the thing is, and then you see it kind of in a different light. Like I, I think it it turns it on its head, and you go, "Hey, yeah, wait a minute. If I am going to the Savior, and he, you know, I've lived, uh, endured to the end. I've led that, you know, life that I intended to do. Is he? Is that what is going to be the big concern? I guess it gives a a perspective in a humorous, but also maybe a, a little bit of an offensive way to some people.
0: Yeah, totally. I think that's a really good insight, and it's a great example of exactly what what interests me about this is that. You can, you can, it's an, it's an articulation of faith, right? Because you don't get it unless you are raised, you have some connection to Mormonism. So there's some kind of identity performance, if you will, in that, but there's also um, a bit of a critique too. It's, it's a subtle critique and that's like, you're saying it can be offensive, but it could also cause people to think It, it could cause you to rethink something. And it might lead to some, you know, positive change in your life. So I think that's uh, that's why memes can be really powerful.
1: There, there is within the church, and maybe this we queue up this question and come back and and hit it in the third block. Uh, but the the idea that the church has long villainized media, and I know. You, when I said it before, you sort of thought, you know, I meant like the news media or you know news in general. But I, I seem to th- feel like the church with media, the broad media, has has very often painted it with a beware the media. Do you, is mm-hmm. that is that something we can get into a little bit? Yeah, I think this gets
0: to the heart of one of the main threads of the book is that um, there's a little bit of a, a paradox almost. And the way that I think Latter-day Saints and and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints more generally is kind of approached media. And again, media meaning communication technologies, Mm -hmm. right? So so if you look at radio, TV, the internet, that's what a lot of I've studied. Those kind of three main mass communication technologies. And I've studied a lot of how church leaders you know, both ecclesiastical leaders and professionals like at, at like KSL, for instance, church owned stations, how they've thought about these different media technologies, you know, whether we should use them or not. And those questions come up, like, is this going to be good or is this going to be bad? And how do we think about it? And there's two kind of competing perspectives. One perspective is to say, oh, this, this media, this medium is a technology. And as a technology, it's a tool. Uh, and it can be used for good or bad. Uh, and we can use it for a lot of great things. Um, here's some potential ways we could use it. And it could make life uh, more convenient. It could make things more efficient. It could um, help in extend the reach or influence. So there's all sorts of positive things you start to think about when you say, okay, this, this thing, so let's say radio or, or TV is a better example. Um, TV has this great potential as a technology, you know, TV broadcasting. So this would be in the, in the early 50s, you know, late 1940s for instance. The other perspective, so one is media as a technology, the other perspective is to think media as a cultural force. So if you start to think about, well, okay, TV as a technology is great, but then this other side is saying you have all these concerns about well, what happens with all the different programs that come on the television set, you know, are my kids going to be allowed to watch this and how can I keep them from these all the sex and violence and the drugs and rock and roll and all this stuff that's going to come on the TV set. That's going to come
1: into my home. Yeah. The frog, the frog in the pot of water, Gavin, if it's, if it's right. hot, we're slowly turning up the water with our. I mean, really, th- these are, these are, um you know, beliefs or, or sermons or talks or whatever you want to call it. Things that you've heard like this, this is how it gets in. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And exactly. And that there's that tension, all throughout Mormon media history, between seeing media as a cultural force that's a threat to family, that's a threat to morality, that's a threat to the church's mission, to individual, um, you know, spiritual well being and spiritual progress, and media as a technology, which is a kind of neutral tool to move the kingdom of God forward. And, and it's kind of, you can't really, they can't really be. um, it's both they're both you know one or the other isn't always true but i think the the latter-day saints and, and church leaders have waffled back and forth between the two sometimes it's a technology and, and it's this great thing And sometimes it's a cultural force so another example is the internet um and the internet again is not just um that there's a lot of things that that happen on the internet right <laughs> but it, but in the in the early, the mid-90s, right, when the World Wide Web was was taking off. So you and I are old enough to probably remember this. You're probably teenagers when you started getting desktops in our home and you started seeing, like, okay, I can, like, search online. And, and it's this crazy new experience. So there was a lot of concern within the church. Um, I interviewed church administrators about this. And so I've got a lot of, like, firsthand accounts of what was going on. And there was a lot of fear around the internet because it was, they're viewing it as a cultural force. They're viewing it um, through the, these, this lens of harm and threat and danger to family. And it was very much, the internet was seen synonymously as a a synonym for pornography, basically. Um, So a lot of people, there's even some anecdotes where people have told me that um, church administrators wouldn't even use the word internet. They would call it the I word. (laughs) <laughs> so there were there were people that were <laughs> um and this is this is like 1996 is the height of this right so you have um what some academics called the the great sex panic of 1996 because this is a little bit of a side tangent but there was a, a research report that was published from a from an academic um talking about how much pornography there was online and this is just the internet still like the the World Wide web is still very new at this point um And the the report was drastically like over-embellished how much was there, and so it was really inaccurate. But it made a huge impression on people at a cultural level. There was a lot of panic around it, and and it led to a lot of congressional hearings, and it led to congressional legislation about about the internet eventually. But if that was your first impression, (laughs) the internet, and, and it's surrounded by these ideas of pornography it's my my husband's going to get addicted to pornography he's going to cheat on me he's going to leave me our family's going to fall apart Um, or i'm going to come across some pedophile in a chat room Mm -hmm. that's the kind of context for the internet so that's it's totally wrapped up in all this cultural discourse this cultural baggage but then again if you it wasn't until about 1998 1999 so it was a few years later when some people started thinking about the internet as a technology and um, one of the key figures is Richard Turley. Some people might be familiar with him. He's worked a the previous guest
1: of the Cultural Hall, as a matter of fact.
0: Oh, awesome! Yeah, yeah. Rick is a great guy. Uh, very intelligent, very kind, and he he was a really big proponent of the internet during this era because he and a few other guys, and I'm sure there are women involved as well, um, but they were really looking at the the World Wide Web, saying, "What can we do?" With family history, there's an opportunity here to use this technology to to move family history, family genealogy forward. And so that was the sea change that happened right around the turn of the century, right around, you know, Y2K when things was things were about to go bad. But it was a it was an important moment because church leaders and administrators finally stopped looking at the Internet as this cultural force, as this enemy, um, as this, you know, carrier of pornography pedophilia and they started thinking oh what can we do with this as a technology so that's another example of how that media is technology media is a cultural force kind of play out with with the internet
1: and walked out even further i mean you look at the numbers from like last year's roots tech and it's over two million people being able to participate in that conference that normally what fifty thousand may have been able to attend uh in real life but over a million or over two million I can't remember astronomical numbers of people being able to participate see and and be able to use that as a technology uh, within mm-hmm. the church confines that's fascinating to me let's take a break I want to come back in the third block there are three questions that we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall I'll ask those of you plus I got a couple other things up my sleeve to ask uh, we'll get to that coming back in the third block of the cultural hall <laughs> When you need creative, affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit Lennondesign.com. Here in the third block of the Cultural Hall, don't forget there is the Cultural Hall Back Row. That is a free Facebook group, uh, over 300 people strong, people who just love the Cultural Hall and, and share random things um, like you know, people will say, oh, I've been to the town in Brazil that Gavin is in, and there's a great burger restaurant. That's the kind of stuff that happens in the cultural hall back row. People will attach to something that has nothing to do with the main thrust of the topic and just go off on tangents upon tangents in that group. You can find it. All you have to do is be approved to get into it, but look for the cultural hall back row. Gavin, uh, something that that sort of comes to my mind as I think about media and... um you know, the history, uh, uh, that's sort of confined in it and looking at mediums, I think of TV and radio as sort of an advertising, um, machine or, you know, the commercialization of it and specifically things, you know, when we, in the last part of the second block, we were talking about, um, you know the these things that infiltrate our home. I I think that maybe on a lesser uh, degree than porn, or maybe the exact same, or maybe an exaggerated. We think of things like alcohol, tobacco, drugs, and, and um and their involvement with the medium of let's say TV. Wh- wh- what do you have to say about all that? Yeah, there's some really interesting
0: stuff that happened that in the early 1950s that I is not talked about ever. Um, because there's definitely this this idea of the church as a very forward-thinking kind of tech savvy early adopter of technology, but also is compatible with this other idea that you brought up about being scared of media too, and and somehow they coexist. Um, but but one of the problems with <laughs> that happened with TV is that TV was incredibly expensive. So just to run a TV station was you know the equivalent of millions of dollars today, right? <laughs> Uh, and the church had resources to purchase TV cameras. So this is, you know, 1948. They purchased TV cameras. They have room to build a studio because they have KSL radio. So they have a really respected and really revered radio station in KSL that they've nurtured for, you know, um, almost 20 years uh, or over 20 years. And they've they've got this technology to, to run a TV station, but um, they started running into a lot of problems because... Because TV is so expensive, you have to recoup the cost through advertising. And at the time, the biggest advertisers were, were alcohol and tobacco companies. <laughs> um, the president of KSL was, was Jay Reuben Clark, who had a personal uh, personal love for the word of wisdom. He was a big advocate on a personal level. Um, and But he was in a really tough spot because he wanted to have a successful TV station. They wanted to turn KSL radio and add KSL TV. But they were in the spot where the network at the time it was CBS. CBS um, wouldn't wouldn't budge. <laughs> they said, "You've got to take alcohol and tobacco advertisers with the programming. You can't have one without the other." And so there's all these fascinating. You can go through J. Ruben Clark's diary and some of these internal meeting notes. Um, and this stuff's public. There's a lot of stuff that's not public. If you church uh, search church history, which is really unfortunate, but this stuff is publicly accessible. Um, and you can see, uh, you have the record of one of these phone calls with J. Reuben Clark trying, pleading with one of the executives at CBS saying like, Hey, is there any way you can tone down the beer advertisements? Like we, we really want to keep our relationship with you as a network. We want to have a successful TV station, but we've got this thing called the word of wisdom. Um, (laughs) that's a big deal for our church, a big deal for our, our members. And, and the CBS executive was like, you know, sorry, we've we've um, we've we've worked with you in the past because they had actually worked with him in the past, but what we really can't, you know, and one of the quotes this the CBS executive says, "I'm looking at this in a cold blooded business way," you know, and, and Jay Ruben Clark's like, "Yeah, I, I totally get it," um, and, and he ultimately decided, well, we've got to kind of make a deal with the devil here and accept the the advertisements um, as part of the the price of being involved in the media industry. Um, and not a lot of people know that. Not a lot of people would think that would happen. you would think, oh my gosh, no way. Uh, a member of the first presidency would make that kind of an arrangement. Um, but that's, that's one of the things that, that media give and media take away, you know, that they, they force us to compromise and, and throughout the church's history, being involved in media industries, whether it's radio or TV or the internet or social media, having a presence it forces you to make compromises um, sometimes there're ethical compromises that you didn't foresee, or ethical, moral compromises you didn't want to make. But but there is definitely that at play. So that's one of the one of the many interesting stories of these kind of side anecdotes that are, go all throughout uh, Mormon media history.
1: And obviously, that got resolved when some of those uh, like TV ads for cigarettes gets banned you know you can't do those sort of commercials and and some of that takes care of itself and some of it remained until the the church even in I want to say even in the 2000s when they switched from CBS to NBC part of that was programming right that that mm-hmm. CBS wouldn't let them out of some of the programming they said fine we'll go and become a an NBC affiliate
0: yeah yeah exactly so there was stuff that's a change in the media industry that made it a little bit easier and there was also this kind of recognition within the church and within um ksl tv's leadership there were huge changes in the 60s you know with the creation of bonneville international that was a a massive change um, where they brought in actual you know tv industry experts or media experts for the first time to kind of run the station Um, and they really understood how broadcasting worked and they were able to say like yeah like we have to make some compromises here and uh, and David O. McKay was a big part of that. So there was huge change in the 60s within the church, within KSL TV uh, and within the industry, like you said, that eventually sort of get resolved, but in a way um, just kind of become accepted. And I think that's something else that's so interesting about media is that when when we have a new technology, there's a lot of questions and there's a lot of um, investigation and a lot of fear mongering and panic and excitement. And there's just so much possibility and so much peril potential peril uh and then a few years later it's like it's like it not, never happened and it just becomes you know part of the woodwork of our lives and it's you know what i like to call it becomes infrastructure where it just becomes unnoticed um, and so i think that's an element too is where the first few years of new mediums have all this uh, contestation around it so much so much controversy but once the controversy dies down, we kind of forget that they were ever controversial in the first place. You know, it's it just becomes part of life and we just move on. And that's what makes media technology so powerful, is they they kind of take hold. Um and we we just kind of live with it. We keep moving on and we kind of forget. We forget the compromises we've made, we forget the the kind of the bargains and the deals we've had to make, and um we kind of tend to think about the positive things and, and not and we forget. Um, so the things you gave up in the process, if that makes sense,
1: and 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 it's uh, interesting to take that even more modern when I think about BYU TV and um, having the inclusion of LGBTQ characters within it, and anytime BYU TV goes to these, you know these these opportunities to be among a bunch of other content creators for television, and they're like, why aren't there? you know, gay characters who are allowed to, to have the gay experience in the programming. And, you know, it causes a lot of controversy and then it will likely just occur. And then we won't think anything about it. Is the lesson, mm-hmm. is the lesson that we're missing time and time again to just agree to it? Cause I think people hear that and go, well, oh, no, I can't, I can't just give in. I have to raise a stink till I can't raise a stink anymore. And then, be able to do it? Or what's maybe the go- the gospel slash spiritual um, lesson within all that? Yeah, that's a
0: really good question. I haven't ever thought about that because so much of what I've done in my research is more kind of documenting and, and theorizing and not so much prescribing like what we should yeah. or shouldn't do. But if I think about it that way, my first thought is just the kind of um, awareness, mm-hmm. just being aware, I think is a really big first step Um, not taking things for granted and being more historically in tune with what's happened you know saying this isn't the first time you know people get up in arms about every every new innovation as if it's you know the first time it's ever happened but you go back through history and you say oh we've we've been through this isn't our first rodeo you know we've been through this before like one of the examples um so interesting is that people would never think that a bicycle you know i I ride a bike a lot I, i don't know if you're a biker but people ride bikes, you know, like it's nothing. Right. And, but the invention of the bike was really controversial because people were worried that it was, it was a kind of an agent of female empowerment. And it really went against a lot of social norms. People who were opposed to biking said, no, it's going to, you know, upend all of these existing cultural norms and women will all of a sudden be doing this. And once they, once they get the freedom of riding a bike, what is it going to lead to right? The slippery slope. Um, so it, it's, it's just learning from the past, remembering the past and, and kind of pausing when we have these moments of, uh, fear or concern, or maybe even excitement as well, just to kind of tamper that a little bit and say, Oh, you know, we've, we've been through this before. Let's, let's look back and see what we can learn from it. Um, so that's, I think the best thing we can do is just be aware learn from it. Um, and I, if it comes to a spiritual level, I think it's, yeah, there's so much that's outside of our control, unfortunately. I mean... Mm-hmm individually, there's so little we can do because so much of this is, um, these are huge forces, right? Economically and culturally, it's, it's, it's a little more about figuring out well, what's my position going to be in my home with my family, you know, in spite of what's going to be happening around me, because it's most, of that's going to be out of our control.
1: Is the next thing that's going to get us up in arms, the world is ending. Is it going to be VR or like web 3.0? Like what's the, what's the thing that I need to start fear mongering now? Oh, is ending i i want to make sure that I'm, I'm i want to make sure i'm one of the loud voices at the beginning of that any sort of thought as we look towards the future <laughs> uh, i
0: i don't have any good prophetic wisdom there to be honest um i think there's so there's a lot of stuff happening with with ai and, and machine learning that's i think pretty intense mm-hmm. but there's already a lot of discussion and controversy around that so yeah, I don't know. Let me know when you find something that's Well, I'll be sort of as really a loud scary, voice you know? shouting it.
1: <laughs> I mean, I love that stuff. And the idea of, and I've only very, very small um, tinkered in, in things like VR, but to be able to go to a church history site in virtual reality and be able to be like I'm there and I don't have to pay to be there. You know the the experience of being able to see those places and be able to have that um, religious thing. I was listening to um, my friend uh, Kurt Frankum does the Leading Saints podcast, who's having this sort of conversation and the idea that um, the technology could integrate with temple worship, and hmm. and could you have a, a a VR experience of the endowment? could there be within a a church building or a stake center a dedicated portion of this to be able to engage in 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 what would normally only be able to be taken place in a in a temple is that how hmm. we're able to usher in the work of the lord and and uh and then of course all of the deviant terrible things that come from vr ai all of these things i'll shout that that'll be my thing i'll i'll get, I'll get up yeah. on that symptom and i'll shout it Shout
0: that! I think, yeah, I would just say we just have to be aware that with whatever great things those opportunities you're talking about that are going to come with with VR, for instance, there's there's going to be trade offs, you know, mm-hmm. and and to be aware of those trade offs. And yeah, we might not be able to control their implementation or what happens once they kind of become a cultural force. I think just being aware that yeah, there it it will have drawbacks, and and not just as simple as pros and cons, but there could be some really serious implications. Um, that you know, may or may not be as visible to us. And that's hard too, is you don't always know what's happening until it's happened. So it's tough when there's so many commercial forces too. You know, you're talking about VR and this kind of religious spiritual context of the the church and potentially temple worship. I think more about um, you know, multinational companies with billions of dollars and um their motivations for using VR are gonna be very different. So that's more what worries
1: me. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But you know what? It's coming. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh there are three questions that we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall. I'll ask those of you now. First question is is Gavin, do you have a calling and if so, what is it? I do not have a calling. If you could pick a calling for yourself, either one that exists or make one up, what would you pick? Make one up. I never thought about making one up. Um I've always liked
0: the idea of working with the young men just because I I was helped so much as a as a teenager. Um, I'm kind of like the classic guy that's like, if it weren't for the church, you know, who knows if I would have, if I'd be alive today, you know, (laughs) just because of without that prefrontal cortex being developed, the the stupid things you do as a teenager, you know, for me, particularly without that foresight, it's, it's kind of scary. So I would love to help um, young men in any way. And I I have my own three, three of my own boys. So I'll probably get that opportunity.
1: (laughs) You'll get get more of that opportunity than you ever wanted.
0: (laughs) Yeah, there'll be an abundance of opportunities there. But that's that's the first thing that comes to my mind. I also think being in the nursery is kind of fun too, because they're just so innocent and life is so simple.
1: And snacks.
0: And snacks,
1: goldfish and fruit snacks. Yep. Right? and It's the same down in Brazil. I love that. I love knowing that the church is the same everywhere. Yeah, Actually, I was going to say,
0: we don't have goldfish and fruit snacks here, but they do a lot of cookies here. A lot of like, a lot of chocolate, like chocolate
1: cookies are are a big deal. So the last question that we ask everyone, we ask you to interpret it however you may, but the question remains, what is your favorite part of your faith? um, hmm, hmm. That's a really good question.
0: Favorite part of my faith. I think it's the connection between looking out and looking in something I was thinking a lot about today.
1: Tell me what you mean. The,
0: The... I think growing up in Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints taught me to look out, to to love people, to look for opportunities to serve, to want to make the world a better place, and to be ambitious about that, not just to be passive, but to be very active with that. Um, but to look in and constantly reflect and think more about, you know, where am I? Am I living my values? Am I living with integrity? Am I being the person I want to be? Um, where do I want to be in the future? I think that that kind of access of looking out, looking in can be really powerful to kind of remember both. So that's something that um, I try to do.
1: Yeah. I love that. I hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you are not healthy enough to listen this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen next week. And that when the time comes, you will be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, Chris at Alpine Lakes Travel, Rick McGee, Debbie Wanless and Chocolate Cake Bites podcast, we'll be saving a seat for you on the back row of the Cultural Hall. Save me a seat. It's sure to be neat on the back row. We really got to go on the Cultural Hall show.